I'm here with Father John Ricardo. He's the pastor of Our Lady of Good Counsel in Plymouth, uh, Michigan, just outside of Detroit in the Archdiocese of Detroit. And Father, you have a big parish, uh, 12,000 people, you said, is that right? That's what it says on the books, yeah, about <laughs> like 3,500 families, roughly. 30, yeah. okay. Keeps me uh, from getting bored. Yeah. And we keep hearing about you and your evangelization efforts and outreach and... Um, and you made the point to me that obviously a priest or three or four priests couldn't evangelize that parish. You need laity, the whole parish working. Talk about like what you've seen in terms of like mobilizing the laity to, yeah. to, in that effort. I think this is one of the huge issues facing the church right now is uh, moving into, you know, we, we hear this expression so often that it gets overused perhaps or we get too comfortable with it, but moving from maintenance to mission. Um, but as the popes have reminded us often in the last uh, number of decades, you know, the church doesn't have a mission. The church is mission, and the mission isn't the, the mission of the ordained. The mission is the mission of all the faithful. And in fact, it's really the lay faithful who have the mission of evangelizing and sanctifying the world. You and I are just supposed to equip them for the work of ministry, you know, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians. But that's not the norm in parish life. So uh, we've, been, we've been pretty, you know, intentional and deliberate over the last, I've been here 12 years um, at this parish and trying to um, listen to what the Lord's asking of us to do so that we can be uh, more outward focused as opposed to being a church that only ministers to the people who are in the pews. Um, and so a lot of transformations have happened in the parish as a result of that. So uh, someone said once, I don't remember who, but it's a great line, you know, the church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who don't belong to it. Mm. And I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, but, it's, but it is true in the sense that we exist for the sake of those who don't belong, yeah. right? I mean, we exist to go get, we're supposed to go fish, right? right. <laughs> you know? And, and um, I like a line Regis Martin said that, the church exists to be dispossessed of herself. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah. yeah, similar thing. Yeah. So, yeah, we've worked hard for these 12 years. And I, I, that's not to say they didn't before me, but I just can't speak to that, to, uh, to try to hear what God's saying to us. So he, here's, here's kind of the, I mean, there's lots to potentially talk about, but I, I, when I pray as a pastor, um, I have two images in my mind. One is uh, that I'm praying like a physician who's reading the x-ray or the MRI of a patient. And so I, I ask the Lord, Lord, where are we sick? Or where, where, where do we need surgery? The body that is Our Lady of Good Counsel. And then we'll do things accordingly. So for example, um, six years ago or so, um, I'd come back from a youth retreat with our kids and uh, just an intense experience with all our teenagers and were away for a weekend, exposed to the Blessed Sacrament. They had really profound encounters with Jesus, made some major conversions, serious commitments to live for him, came back, and I'm like, I've got to find a way to bring this whole parish on retreat. Like, how am I going to do that? And um, it was because of that experience with the kids and then some conversations that I had with people who mentioned something to me that we began doing Alpha at the parish. So Alpha is this really popular tool that's out there that comes out of the Anglican Church in England. And it, some people love it. Some people are concerned about it because it's not Catholic. But 
Um, it's just the basic gospel. Uh, and we did it. I made a decision to do it because the wound, if you will, going back to the MRI or the x-ray image, that I felt like the Lord showed me was we are a parish, and the people would tell you this, filled with people who've been sacramentalized but who haven't been evangelized. They don't know Jesus as a friend. Um, they don't have a, a, an intense relationship with him. Benedict, I love that line of Benedict, you know, that to be a Christian is not the real result of an ethical choice or a lifestyle. It's the result of an encounter with an event that gives an entirely new trajectory to your life. Mm-hmm. So we did that as a result of the, you know, the wound. And then we continue to do it uh, to try to be an outreach tool. The other way I pray is I pray like I'm a general. So me and the leadership team that I have around me. And I'm looking at a map. And I'm asking, Lord, where do you want us to attack the strongholds of the enemy? And then we'll, we'll prayerfully discern things to do to start taking back for God, because God wants his world back what seems to be in the hands of the enemy, like going after, trying to equip parents to, to really take authority in the right sense over their household, you know, and uh, to go to war on behalf of their kids against the enemy and all the ways that he's trying to go after them through technology and all the other things. So I think the, the, for me, the long way of saying the key to parish renewal is sounds like such a given, but it's not. Like the pastor really has to pray. Mm. And the people who work with him really have to pray. Not say prayers, but pray. Mm. And say, Lord, what, what are you asking of us in this concrete community that you want us to do? Right. Both for us so that we can encounter you more profoundly and then so that we can go out from here and be a means by which we can bring others back. Right? So, long way to go, but uh, God's done uh, really remarkable things and that, despite us. <laughs> and that's a, an emphasis in Unleash the Gospel, right? The diocesan letter about kind of the renewal of the priesthood and prayer um, as being so vital, right? Yeah, and one of the tragedies in the and the priesthood, right, is you know it, I know it. I mean, I do direction for priests, and you live with priests. and um, Lots of priests don't pray, mm-hmm. you know, and it's easy to not, you know, you can, you can get discouraged. You can, your work is, uh, I mean, how, how can you care for 12,000 people? You can't, right? Mm-hmm. So you can, you can make all sorts of justifications. My work is my prayer. My ministry is my prayer. But if you don't pray, then you got no intimacy with the Lord, then you're at risk already. And if you don't pray, you have nothing to offer people, you know? So I think the first step in parish renewal is the pastor has to really seriously keep a holy hour. Mm-hmm. I think there's four steps actually to parish renewal. There's four key ingredients to parish renewal. They're all really easy. Um, the first is uh, Eucharistic exposition. Like I'm just convinced that's the wrecking ball. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just had so many experiences. I've seen the Lord work in people's lives when the Eucharist is exposed that I've, I've just, it wasn't part of my life growing up as a kid. I grew up in the 60s and 70s and the, there was no exposition around, you know. So, um, 
but I've seen it work and I've seen people be overwhelmed by God through prayer in the Blessed Sacrament. So I create tons of opportunities to pray in front of the Eucharist. We have an adoration chapel now. It's where we do exposition from Monday through Friday, all night long, all day long. So that, that's, that's like the first simple step. The second step is the pastor has to pray um, for real. Uh, the third step is uh, the parish staff has to become a team. So I, I felt like the Lord gave us an image a set of years ago that the parish itself is like a human body. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the parishioners are the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears and all that. The staff is like the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And if the spinal cord is pinched, mm-hmm. the, the body doesn't function. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, like a lot of parishes, a lot of parish staffs are not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the staff has to become a team. So some of the work that guys like Pat Lencioni and whatnot have done, Catholic Leadership Institute on organizational health and team building, that's been a total game changer for us as a parish. Mm-hmm. So we've done that, worked hard with them um, to become a team where we're, we have, you know, um, we're, we're, we trust each other, we're vulnerable with each other, we have really healthy conflict as opposed to walking out of a meeting and, there's meetings in the hallway after the mm-hmm. meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, we're committed to results. We hold each other accountable. We've got values that we really aspire to and that we are constantly reminding ourselves of, that we abide by. Um, we created a, a culture that really drives everything that we do. This comes out of Luncioni's work and the advantage. Um, you know, questions like why do we exist and how do we behave and what do we do and what's the most important thing to do right now Questions like that, that any successful organization does, but lots of parishes don't. Mm. So it's just trying to apply good sound, you know, uh, business principles into running a a parish. Mm. And then the fourth step for me is the staff has to, so the staff becomes a team, that's three. The fourth is the team has to pray. Mm. So we pray together as a parish staff every day for a half hour. Um, so it's just an expectation if we're on the property there's about 25 of us um, we stop whatever we do we gather in our conference room and we pray we pray for the intentions of the parish we pray for the ministries that we're doing for new initiatives for the situation in the world for you know personal issues that we got in our families so we'll write them all on a board and then we'll either pray the rosary or we'll pray the chaplet or we'll do a holy hour once a week Mm -hmm. um altogether and that that's changed everything for us mm. that, so those things are what enable the parish then to get going because the spinal cord's healthy mm-hmm. does that make sense right. Yeah. right and then have you had some success too and maybe people that aren't officially part of staff but to be involved in work of mission in the parish and, and what does that look like how have you done that yeah so all our outreach, again, it's that passage in Ephesians, right? So our work as priests is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the saints are the parishioners, right? They're out there. So that starts with leading them into a life-changing encounter with Jesus. That's our, that's our vision as a parish. Like That's why we exist, to offer every person in our community a life-changing encounter with Jesus. So we want to lead people into an encounter. Then we want to help them to grow as radical disciples. And then we want to equip them 
to be able to give witness to others around them of the difference Jesus has made in their lives so as to bring them into the community. Mm-hmm. So encounter, grow, witness, that's the triad that the Archbishop mm-hmm. uses in Detroit and that we abide by too. So, you know, you might come through RCIA, great. So you come into that and then, or you might go to Alpha and that might lead you to RCIA. Then you might get into a, some sort of a, a growth group, a grow group we call them, where, you know, you might be studying the faith together. You might be doing a Bible study. Yeah, that's a small group. Mm-hmm. It's a small group because people need community, mm-hmm. especially when you're in a huge parish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we try to, uh, so that's helpful for people. Um, it just keeps them involved with the faith and with each other and gives them good friendships. Uh, but then we also really want to try to equip people that we think are able to be what we would call disciple makers. Mm-hmm. So we try to f- teach them and work with them so as to go out and to spiritually multiply, to use kind of the focus language that Curtis mm-hmm. Martin and those folks use. So we're trying to help people learn how to um, share the gospel with others, to walk with others, to accompany them in the language that Pope Francis would use, um, and to really kind of mentor them spiritually so as to bring others into serious discipleship. So I do think, I, I do think a priest can evangelize 12,000 people, but I don't think a priest can pastor 12,000 people <laughs> right. I, or disciple 12,000 yeah. people because that yeah. takes time, yeah. right? I don't think you can disciple more than three, four, five, six people. So you'll see like a a man maybe who's trying to disciple another man that they would grab coffee, pray together. What would that kind of look like concretely? So I might, the way I do it, so I I sat down with a guy, a good friend of mine, and I just said, hey, let me propose something to you. Let me propose to you that you ask the Lord to show you two or three people that you might be um, able to invest in spiritually. And he went, I already got one. And I went, great. So he was telling me the story of, uh, he had a young guy in mind. So this, this friend of mine is uh, mid-late 40s. And the guy he was thinking of is a, a young man in his early 20s. Was a solid guy, good family and all that. Uh, but my friend went up to him after Mass and um, simply went up to him and said, hey, uh, you know, Joe, would you be interested in, and before he even finished the sentence, the guy said, yes. Hmm. And he, he wanted to invite him for coffee, and they'd yeah. be going out for coffee. And yeah. it, my friend was so taken back by the fact that here's a guy from a good family, the young guy, but who he knew respected him, my friend, just for his life of faith and his family life mm-hmm. and just kind of the, the man he is. Mm-hmm. And he needed another guy just to, to walk with him. Mm-hmm. So my friend goes out with him every couple of weeks. They grab coffee, and the conversation might be everything from, you know, just checking in with how's, how's school or how's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you praying? What's that look like on a daily basis? Um, he saw him with his girlfriend one time, and he just said, hey, I saw your girlfriend. Your girlfriend's really cute. How's chastity going? <laughs> so he's just probing, you know, and, and, he, yeah. and he knows he has um, kind of like permission to do that because there's mm-hmm. a friendship, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to me going up to the stranger going, hey, how's your life a chastity? <laughs> like, that doesn't work. Yeah. Is it usually like would be older man with the younger guy? or Not necessarily. Okay. 
Okay. It could be uh -huh. two people of the same age. Yeah. It's always men with men and women with women. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, but the age sometimes is negligible. Mm. The difference. What do you tell people? I had my mom ask me this question. I think I was. She heard me preach something about friendship with Jesus. What did? You, what do you tell people about cultivating that friendship, and what does it look like? With the Lord. Mm -hmm. Well, life without friendship is not worth living. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so we know that yeah. on a human level. Um, I think the the tragedy is countless people don't know you can actually have a friendship with God that God mm -hmm. wants. I mean, He made us for friendship, right? Made us for friendship with Him mm -hmm. and with each other. And you get a friendship with God the same way you get a friendship with somebody else. You spend time with mm -hmm. that person. So if I'm going to become, if I'm going to get to know the Lord as a friend, I have to make a commitment to spend time with Him every day. That's the importance for me of the holy hour. Right. That's the single greatest habit I think I have in my life. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do there? <laughs> you know, like what do you do when you pray? Um, that's what... That's what causes most people problems. I'm, I'm impressed more and more in parish life that the, the number one thing people ask for help with is teach me how to pray. Like I, mm. I, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Flannery O'Connor's um, journal that got published a couple of years ago now, I love Flannery O'Connor, and they published, it's just a very short book, but it's some of her journal entries. So here's this really devout woman, and at one point her journal entry is simply, won't someone please teach me how to pray? I was really struck by that. And so prayer's not intuitive. Um, you need to help people. So there's lots of different ways to do that. But uh, I encourage people to do something as simple as, you know, find a place. If you can't get in front of the Blessed Sacrament, create a place in your home that's you know, kind of like dedicated to that's all you do there. You know, it's a, it's a corner room with a comfortable chair, maybe an icon or a crucifix or something. Mm -hmm. And it's just a place you can sit and be with the Lord and be quiet. And you got to be quiet, not so that you can do nothing, but so that you can hear. Right. Right? So I need to be still so that I can, like for me to talk right now, you have to be not talking. And for mm -hmm. you to talk, I have to be not talking. That's, that's how conversation happens. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just cacophony. So that's the goal of being silent, is not to empty my mind of all my thoughts. It's to invite the Lord into my thoughts you know, and then to begin to converse with him about real life. <laughs> you know, like I always make the distinction between saying prayers and praying. It's easy to say prayers. Right. It's hard to pray. Um, couples get this. Couples can just get into ruts and talking with each other. They say the same words over and over again mm -hmm. versus to actually make myself vulnerable and talk about what's going on in my in my heart or in my mind? What am I afraid of? That's the easiest way I know how to pray. You just say, Lord, here's, here's my life. Here's the things that are on my mind right now. Here's the things I'm afraid of. Here's, here's my hurts, whatever it might be. Um, and then you just talk to him and you listen to him. Um, you spend time praising and thanking him for what you have. Um, and then you read scripture a lot. Because people say, oh, I pray, but I never hear God. You know, it's a common thing. And I always say, well, do you read, do you read the Gospels? Because if you read the Gospels, you're always hearing God. 
because yeah. <laughs> he's talking to you. Right. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't just for them. That was for now. <laughs> like, the Word of God's alive. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you want to develop a habit. There's it's kind of a sporadic answer to your question, but if I can get to a, a consistent rhythm and habit of praying, and of wasting time with Jesus every day. That's my favorite expression for prayer. Um, your yeah, life will that's radically change. That's how sees it. We're wasting. <laughs> yeah, but I use it in a positive sense. Yeah, yeah. So what I mean by that is it, it's not a waste of time. Right. Like I, I think of it as um, time is so precious to us, right, yeah, that yeah. you don't waste it. But I will right. waste it. Like I like to waste time with friends. Yeah. You know, I'll do anything with certain yeah, friends of mine. Yeah. And so wasting time with Jesus is just this way of like, Lord, this is the most valuable thing I have is my time. I love to give it to you. And yeah. I love to share it with you. And so I love to just waste time with him. Yeah. It's not a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, my spiritual director used to tell me that in, uh, in seminary. I like that expression too. Waste time with Jesus. But what about uh, like when you're counseling people that... You know, we get social media, television, internet it can easily push out our prayer time, our quality time. And how do you win that battle? I don't know shortcuts for great habits. So you just have to do it, you know. <laughs> yeah. So like you just, you, you really have, to, for some people it's like, I got to make a note. I got to put a reminder on my phone, whatever. Like for me, it's a given that the first thing I do in the morning, I wake up, I take a shower, I make a cup of coffee and I go pray. Mm. Like every day, it never changes. Mm. If, if it means I gotta, like today we were doing mass, and so mass is at seven. I'm supposed to be at the sacristy at six forty-five. Yeah. That means I yeah. gotta get up earlier because I gotta get yeah. a holy hour in before yeah. I show up to see you. So, right. so you lose sleep, but you pray, yeah. but it, it can't move. Like you can't lose mm. that. I'm convinced of that. Mm. Um, you always find time for things you love. Mm-hmm. Always. You know, if it means I got to work out at two in the morning with the guy who loves to work out, he does that. Yeah. Right. And right. so y- you just got to have, you got to build the habit and, um, you, you know, so, so you start with today, I'm going to pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if I don't have a habit today, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to just do that for this week. This week, the goal is I'm going to pray every single day. I'm going to try to do it at the first thing every day or some, or at least I'm going to get it in today. You know, yeah. I'm going to get yeah. time to pray every day. Yeah. There's some of these things. Your your father was in corporate America. Are these some of the disciplines and approaches? Did he influence you on that? Oh, big time. Yeah. So my dad. I saw my dad every morning, um, working out on his exercise bike, reading the scriptures, mm. and then he began the day by going to mass before he went to work. Mm. Th- those were givens every single morning. He worked oh. out, read the Bible, and he went to mass. Wow. And then every night before he went to bed, I saw him on his knees. Like, I'm convinced he, my dad left the door open in their bedroom to let us see him praying. Mm. I mean, the door shut eventually, you know. Yeah. But, um, but it, I would always be able to look down the hallway of our house, and yeah. he was on his knees praying. Oh. And, and my dad was successful. And so because, without him ever having to say anything, although he said plenty, but he didn't have to say anything, because he was successful, the fact that I saw him every day go to Mass read the Bible, and pray, it just infused in me as a boy growing up. I guess that's what a man does. A man prays. Right. <laughs> you know, right. like my dad didn't need a crutch. Yeah. So 
that just didn't mean, that argument never meant anything to me. Mm-hmm. This is what a normal, healthy, um, like testosterone-filled man does. He prays, mm-hmm. he acknowledges God, he worships God, he puts God first. Yeah. So that was a huge impact for me. So like he was a little bit ahead of the exercise craze, wasn't he? If he was doing the bike in the 70s and stuff. Or he started in the 60s, yeah. <laughs> so he, he did it because he was 41 when I was born, and he realized he was going to be 60 by the time I was 18, and he wanted to be able to like play basketball and do all sorts of things with me and my friends and whatnot. Yeah. And so he just made a commitment, like, I got to get in and stay in shape. Yeah, And yeah. he was, re- was religious about it. Yeah. We were joking before that, you know, he was in Detroit and it seems like uh, kind of a very vintage image of America, you know, corporate America, like kind of America hard at work and manufacturing, producing something. And Mm. what was some of the the great virtues of that growing up in that lifestyle that uh, you think that have blessed you? From my father? Yes. Mm -hmm. So my mom and dad, my, my dad passed away two and a half years ago. My mom just died a month ago. Uh, so they were married for 66 years. And mm. My sisters and I, my brother passed away too, so it's just my three sisters and me, and we regularly say to each other, we won the lottery mm. somehow with my parents. Um, they, uh, they almost divorced early on in their marriage mm. and made a commitment to really fight for each other and they they would continually remind us of what it was that was said to them when they were married so in the old marriage right there was that exhortation before marriage and there was a line in there that says uh, sacrifice which is the heart of marriage is always tedious and irksome Mm. love can make it bearable Mm. but perfect love makes sacrifice a joy And they, they both heard that exhortation and they lived it. And so they modeled for us sacrificial love. Like we just saw them outdoing each other in love. And so as a, as a man growing up, like it was the great preparation for a priesthood for me and for marriage for my sisters and my brother because like we knew you find happiness by giving, you know, by giving yourself, by loving another, by entrusting yourself to another by caring for another, uh, pouring yourself out for, for another. And we saw that all the time. I'll give you a real concrete example. So my dad, when Chrysler was trying to get the loan uh, back at the end of the 70s, so my dad's CEO of Chrysler. And so he's f- he was negotiating back and forth with the Carter administration. And Chrysler had, um, we had a condo in Washington for business and whatnot. Chrysler did, not we, our family. Mm. And it would have been an awful lot easier for my dad just to stay in Washington. I mean, he was there every single day meeting with Congress and different senators. But instead of staying there, my dad would wake up early in the morning, go to Mass, get on a plane, fly to Washington, meet all day long, come back at like 10.30 at night, Mm. and then go back and do the same thing day after day after day after day. He did this for three months. Mm. The reason he did it was that he could be home with my mom right. and me and my brother, who were still at home at the time. Mm-hmm. And just seeing that, like, this was a killer to him. My dad had a heart attack. He was 
He was dying as a result of the stress. And so to see that, uh, the love that he had for my mom, truly putting God first and then my mom and the family second and then work third, as significant as work was for him. My dad loved his job. He loved to work. That was massive. And then finally, at one point, he's talking to a, uh, to a member of the Senate, and the guy was, my dad was pretty direct, so his nickname was the flamethrower. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so he's, he's talking to some guy, and the guy was trying to uh, very obliquely tell him that Chrysler was not going to get the loan if things stood as they were. And so he, he says things to that effect, you know. And my dad says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Are you telling me that we won't get the money if I'm still the CEO? And the man kind of looked down. He was like, um, yeah. And my dad said, well, well, then that's easy. I'll just resign right now. And so he did. Wow. <laughs> so he just resigned. Like, so talk about an example for a, a, a son to learn. So he, this is courage, right? Courage yeah. is the willingness to fall in battle. Right. So my dad just said, wait a minute. If, for the company to survive, for people to continue to have jobs, well, then I'll lose mine. Mm. And my daddy didn't get a golden parachute. He didn't get a farewell party. He didn't get a watch. He didn't get a thing. Mm. He, just, he just left, brought another person in to be able to do the work. You know, he made the transition possible by hiring Iacocca. All for the purpose of a company surviving. Well, let me tell you, I was 15 at the time. That made a massive impact on me. Like, that was greatness to me. Right. You know? That was the culture I grew up in. I yeah. grew up in a culture of a heroic man and a heroic woman. Mm. And when you see virtue lived out like that at great personal cost, you just want to imitate it. And, man, if I could be one one-thousandth of the man my dad was, I would be a great man. What did he go on to do after Christ? Served in the church. Did he? So he served on board, served at Franciscan University, worked for the Archdiocese, worked for the Vatican. What did he do for the Vatican? He worked for the, uh, the governor, you know, like kind of the, um, what did they call the office? So, I mean, it sounds really glorified, but it, it basically meant showing up twice a year and kind of overseeing um, books and whatnot kind of looking at things not the yeah. vatican bank that was something else make that clear <laughs> um but s some some of the other things you know like i can remember him telling me one time like son do you know what everything that the church owns is is uh, valued at i'm like no and he says it's all on the books for a dollar because huh. what kind of what kind of appraisal are you going to put on the pieta <laughs> you know <laughs> or the sistine chapel <laughs> You know, like, right, who, right. Who, they're priceless things, yeah, you know? So it's, right. all, it's all estimated at a dollar. It's all valued at a dollar. <laughs> a so he just served there. A <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no, it's a real dollar. <laughs> Remember the lira. Oh. So that was a huge impact on us yeah. growing up. And then just to watch him care for my mom. My mom's health was really poor. And uh, he would just serve her. Hmm. He continued to live in the Detroit area? Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's also talk about uh, your, you have a license in marriage and family, is that right? Or uh, moral theology, but it's yeah, from the John Paul II Institute on Marriage and Family. Okay. And you wrote your dissertation on uh, Ephesians 5, and uh, modern women especially, 
kind of arches our back when they hear that read on Sunday. Yeah, right. How, how are we to understand Ephesians? 4? There's even an option in the lectionary to shorten it and to, and to take that part out. Right. Like that's, even the bishops apparently think, or somebody <laughs> thinks, that we can't handle this text, which right. is, I mean, unbelievable, right? right. So we, we've basically said by that, I think God is out of touch. Yeah. And God's never out of touch. Yeah. So if I don't understand something in the Word of God, if it really is the Word of God, the problem, like this shouldn't be that, you know, hard an insight to make. The problem must be with me, mm. <laughs> not with God. And I think that's the, the challenge with Ephesians is we tend to read it through 21st century American eyes and Paul is not writing in the 21st century and, and he's... Um, He's not speaking language uh, in the way that we would understand him to be speaking. So there's nothing like this text in any pagan document. This mm -hmm. is not the mere baptism of, you know, a misogynist, oppressive way of life where the woman is, you know, chattel. Because mm -hmm. um, the biblical view of man and woman is man and woman are absolutely equal in dignity. They're both made in the image and likeness of God. They're just different. You know, and that's not code for inferior, right? Because the, the grounding of the difference is the Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, God is three persons, mm -hmm. three distinct persons. They're not the same, mm -hmm. but they're equal. And so, so that in and of itself is kind of like the metaphysical foundation of how it can be that man and woman are distinct and different and yet absolutely equal. So the text, I think, just causes problems because it sounds like it's saying, um, hey, wives, just obey your husbands, and, and the husband's the head, and that means boss or lord or ruler, and so just do whatever he says, and that is not at all what the text means. So the text begins, um, you know, subordinate yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's a command to the entire Christian community. So we're supposed to, all of us are supposed to live this way with each other. And then it goes on to say wives, there's actually no verb in the Greek, but wives subordinate yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. That's where the husband kind of like elbows his wife. Hear that, honey? <laughs> so what's that mean, right? So it doesn't mean submit and it doesn't mean obey. Um, the word in Greek actually means um, it's an action that you choose to do to yourself. So it would be something like this. Um, wives, as persons who are absolutely equal in dignity to your husbands, choose freely to place yourselves under their loving care. Mm -hmm. Well, that, was, that wasn't so violent, <laughs> right? So place yourself mm -hmm. under their loving care. Okay, if that's the case, then here's where the elbow should get thrown. The elbow should get thrown from the wife to the husband because that, Im that implies there's some loving care to place yourself under, mm -hmm. right? That's where headship comes in. So, you know, the, the, the man is head, the husband is head as Christ is head. And Christ is not head as authoritarian ruler. Mm -hmm. Christ is head by handing himself over for his bride and laying down his life for her. Mm -hmm. That's what the husband is called to imitate, mm -hmm. you know? So the three key words for the husband are headship, but it's headship as Christ is head, 
Christ is head by handing himself over. The Greek word there is a word that is always used in the New Testament for the passion. You know, Judas hands over Jesus mm-hmm. to, the, uh, to the Jews. The Jews hand over Jesus to Pilate. Pilate hands Jesus over to be scourged. That's the word that's used here. So it's very much a word connected with the passion. And then it goes on to say, you know, the, the word love, four words for love in Greek, you know, love of family, love of friendship, erotic love, and then agape. And that's the word that's used here. Like love this way, love by pouring yourself out. <clears throat> so the text is really, the way John Paul talks about it, is it's a, a mutual subordination that's being called for, you yeah. know, in different ways. So the husband's supposed to, to, to entrust himself to his wife. He's supposed to lay himself down for his bride. The bride's right. supposed to lay herself down for her husband, yeah. which means there's no room for keeping score in marriage. That's the norm in married life, right? Mm-hmm. People keep score. You keep score, you're dead. Mm-hmm. Can't do that. Mm-hmm. So we're all competitive. The key in marriage is, okay, I got I to gotta outdo you today in showing kindness. <laughs> I'm going to outdo you today mm-hmm. in showing mercy mm-hmm. or being generous. I, that's why I've looked at it too. It's like the man and the woman, husband and wife, lay their gifts at the service of the family and the other and, uh, and to serve. And, and I, think, I think something sometimes is missed today is any kind of recognition of you know, we emphasize male leadership, uh, female leadership a lot today and the call to lead. And to me, there's, I think there needs to be some more acknowledgement of certain gifts men have in leadership, mm-hmm. like practically speaking, you know, what this headship looks like. And, and certainly there's different personal gifts between the couple. You know, the woman might be better at having the checkbook or, or making some decisions or have a long-range vision or whatever. You know, there's right. different. But... Generally speaking, it seems like, and I, I think too, although you, you never see this, but you know, the, the male, all male priesthood, you know, called to be shepherds, there's like this leadership quality dimension in being a shepherd that is suited to the man. And I, again, I don't read that hardly in a yeah, document, right, right. but I mean, to me, it's kind of like so obvious. But I don't know, I feel like we can't say it today for some reason. Well, I think men and women, cl- you know, clearly both can and, and are supposed to lead. I mean, like we see women mm-hmm. leading in the Old Testament even. Um, but we lead differently. Right. You're going to lead as a man or you're going to lead as a woman. Mm-hmm. And we, we need women's gifts badly. Um, but we also need, like, healthy men's gifts mm-hmm. badly, not deformed men's gifts who are you know, egotistical and all about me and trying to exercise power versus try to exercise control, uh, authority. Domination. Which is, which is different, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'll give you a, 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 how I would think of it. I think the, with marriage especially right now, and again, I go back to my mom and dad's marriage. Um, when I'm doing marriage prep, I always ask a couple, um, do you know the point of marriage? And I, I would argue that there is a point, and this might be pushing it somewhat, but, I th- but it, it's helpful, I think, for people. And so we, we break open that little fifth grade definition that we all learned that didn't seem to be all that relevant, but I think it's amazingly relevant. So what's a, marriage is a sacrament. What's a sacrament? 
visible sign of an invisible reality instituted by Jesus, which gives grace, except in marriage's case, it's elevated by Jesus. Okay, so from this, I think you can get the point of marriage. So the visible sign of marriage is, like I love asking this of couples who are like, uh, the ring? No, it's not the ring. Uh, children? No, it's not children. It's you. It's the, it's the way you love each other, right? So the first person that the husband is assigned to is his wife. And the first person the wife is assigned to is her husband. You know, the way you love, the way you forgive, the way you ask for forgiveness, the way you're generous, the way you're gracious and kind and all those things. Okay. So the sign is the love that you have for each other. What's the invisible reality? It's the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. Okay. What's grace? Grace, the easiest way I know how to describe grace, grace is power. So the good news of marriage in the Gospels is that to do this is not a question of just trying harder. You know, this is not a matter of exhortation, like, come on, you can love. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, you're doomed. You know, it's like when you and I got ordained, you know, the Lord said, I want you to love the way I love as the good shepherd. And I'm like, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I know me, and I am not like that. You know, yeah. so I need grace. You need grace. Grace mm-hmm. is power to be able to do what he's asking me to do, right? And then faith is the cooperation with that grace. So when a couple gets married, the nuptial blessing, they get, here's the way I think of it, plugged into the power grid of the city or the power grid that is God. It's like building a house and connecting it to the power grid of the city. From that moment on, you've got electricity. You've got to flip the switch to get it, but you have it. When you get married, boom, you're plugged into the power grid of God's love to love the way he's called you to love. Now, you, you may not choose to do that some days, but you have access to that kind of power. Okay, so what's the point? Here's the point. When my dad died, my mom and I were standing at the casket, about to walk down the main aisle. And I heard her say to my dad, as she looked at him in the casket, because of you, I know who God is. Mm. And I think that's the whole point of marriage. So every marriage is an arranged marriage because Jesus says what God has joined together, man must not divide. So God's brought a husband and a wife into each other's lives if it's a valid marriage. The question is why? So there's a mission to be sure, but I think, I think the first reason he brings a man and a woman into each other's lives is because he wants to equip them to make him tangible to the other person. And then collectively as a couple, to make him tangible to their children, if they have them, and to everybody who ever sees them and encounters them. Yeah. And if, if we would just get back to that simple basic, I think our understanding of marriage would be remarkably healed. Yeah. And we should uh, say too, in talking about, just in a larger sense, men and women working together, you said on your staff at parish, you have some uh, some women have some very prominent roles and are doing some of the heavy lifting there at the parish. And Oh, yeah. yeah. So I have a leadership team, you know, that I rely on heavily for insight and wisdom. And I'll, you know, we, we, we pray together. We collaborate together. They all know I, I, they're on the leadership team because I trust them. I know they'll be respectful of me. But part of that means I know that they'll 
be free to go, Father, I think that's a stupid idea. Mm -hmm. And I need to hear that, you know, like, it ain't, it ain't all gold that comes out of my mouth, pretty obviously. <laughs> um, and so there's uh, a set of women who have been really instrumental in helping me to lead the parish, you know. Um, a set of men, too, but uh, I, I need, you know, humility is to know your gifts, right? Mm -hmm. and to know who you really are. And I know the gifts that I have, and I know the things that I don't have. And so a, a good leader surrounds himself with people who have the gifts he doesn't have so that the work that God's called us to do can get done. Because um, the whole point is to accomplish the mission, not to stroke you know, your own ego. Right. So I've, I rely really heavily on the insight and the wisdom of, a, uh, of, of women on our staff. So we're almost split equally, which is kind of unique amongst parishes for a staff art as big as ours, 25 people, between men and women. And uh, so it's, in other words, we have a lot of men on our staff, which is yeah. not normal. Yeah. But I, I, I desperately need... Um, the insight and the wisdom and the perspective of a godly woman who's sold out radically for Jesus, who, yeah. you know, doesn't have an agenda of her own. I notice sometimes too they they bring like an attention to the person, the individual, and maybe kind of takes the, the vision out of the abstract or uh -huh. accomplishing or whatever. But hey, there's people involved here. <laughs> yep, that's uh, <laughs> it's amazing how we can miss that, isn't it? Yeah, at least I know I can. Yeah. Uh, one of them will say to me regularly, um, uh, do you know how you came off at that meeting? And I'm like, yeah. oh, no, did I really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> I know for Life on the Rock, we've had, uh, we've had three women producers. Now we have a male producer. And, um, and I noticed all three of the women, they brought a lot of energy. Hmm. They, like, fired up. You know, men can kind of sometimes get in the path of least resistance, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. And it's like they would kind of, they'd call us to to engage here a little more. And yep. To bring some emotional energy to it. Let's also, we'll just close with this. On Detroit, just, you know, Detroit's been through so much with the manufacturing suffering and, but it seemed like spiritually, and you said economically, the city's coming back. But there's so much great stuff going off there in Michigan. Mm. Why is that? Were there martyrs there a couple hundred years ago or something? <laughs> well, the North American martyrs uh, certainly have some attachment to us, although they didn't get to Detroit. But uh, I, I really think, um, I mean, who knows? It's God's grace, right? I mean, ultimately. I, I do think there's a couple of things. One, uh, we're blessed to have an archbishop who is um, prayerful, humble, brilliant and holy and that's a rarity mm. it's an odd combination and who's also utterly dependent on god and he's willing to um to risk and to to step out of his own comfort zone and so we've we've gone through a, a synod on the new evangelization which happened a couple of years ago now uh, that was preceded by a whole year of prayer asking for a new pentecost it's his conviction we've had one so we're uh, what's going on in Detroit is really exciting. I would encourage everybody to find online um, the document that he wrote called Unleash the Gospel. It's just unleashthegospel.org is the pastoral letter he wrote on evangelization. It's spectacular. Um, it's the best thing written on evangelization, actually. 
Um, so he's at the center of it, I think, you know. Mm. And then um, I think God just wants to show if, if Detroit can get rebuilt, anything can get rebuilt. <laughs> and I mean that really seriously, you know. Right, it's right. interesting, you know, the motto of the city of Detroit comes from a priest, uh-huh. Father Gabriel Richard, who was uh, the pastor of the first church <clears throat> and also the founder. Or he, he wasn't there when they founded the first church, but he was the pastor of the first church. And he was the founder of the University of Michigan. And the motto is it came after a fire that destroyed the city. And the motto is, um, we hope for better things. She will arise from the ashes. Mm. And the, the word is the, the word for resurrection. I mean, it is an amazingly Catholic and Christian motto. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced right now that uh, we're seeing it begin to happen. Mm. I think the Lord just wants to, he's situated Detroit for whatever reason as a place of, uh, you know, it's where the riots happened, a set of riots. It's been so decimated by white flight from the city. But now you're seeing... And people. it's always named, too, like unwed pregnancies. I'm in the black community, I think, like... Yeah, I mean, the fam- family life in Detroit yeah. was really, really attacked. Yeah. Um, high crime, mm-hmm. poor education. But it, th- there are remarkable trends happening right now. There's some real healing between blacks and whites. The church should be taking the lead in this. Like, if anybody knows about the healing of division, it's the church, right, Right, you know? Because Jesus is the one who brings the healing. So I think we're seeing some real healing. There's a lot more to go. Um, People are moving back into the city. Uh, The economy's really coming back. Detroit's a massive geographical footprint. I mean, you can fit Boston San Fran and Manhattan inside Detroit. Mm. It's a massive footprint. So whether the whole thing will come back, I don't know. But at least sizable parts of the city are. And it's got to start somewhere. And I think the church is poised now to really, downtown in the city, jump into that. And as the Archbishop repeatedly says, like, God wants his world back. He wants his... That's the line. It's a great line, isn't it? God God wants wants his his world world back. back. Yeah. I was trying to remember that from Unleash the Gospel. And he's the Lord of the, I mean, he's, he's the Lord of the city of Detroit. He's the Lord of Birmingham. And not Lord as a, like, you know, tyrant. Lord in the sense of it's properly his. Right. And, and to serve him is to know freedom. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we so we're excited. Every year we have groups of uh, Chaldean Catholics come down from oh, Detroit. Oh, yeah. Right. Huge they, Chaldean community. Right. They they have a strength about them. That's yeah, they do. <laughs> that uh, you feel like, okay, we're going to be all right. You know, you yep. talk to them. Yep. <laughs> They've been through so much in Iraq and things. But Well, thank you so much, Father, for coming down and sharing your faith with us. It's been great. Yeah, it's good to be with you, too.